as we come now before the very Word of God. And you can turn in your Bibles for the final time now to the book of Exodus. This will be our last week in Exodus. So Exodus chapter 15. If you'd like to read with me, Exodus 15. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know because your word tells us so and because it just is true that wisdom is more precious than jewels and that nothing we desire can compare with you. Lord, these things are a tree of life to those who hold to them. So would you make us strong to cling to your word? Would you make us wise to see the value of these things? And would you press them upon our heart and cause us to trust you? We ask your guidance now by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the book of Exodus in chapter 15. I want to take up uh, this morning the bulk of the chapter, so we'll read these first 21 verses Uh, They all fit together, and you'll see why, I suppose, in a moment. Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord has become my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will partake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. The pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in 
and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of God. I wanted to slow down there at the end because this is the very last Sunday we'll be in the book of Exodus, at least in this series through for quite some time. So I feel not quite ready to let it go. Uh, We know that the story of Israel will continue to unfold after this. There are 25 more chapters in the book of Exodus. But this is a natural ending point for us, at least for now. The verses that we've just read here are a good summary of what the people of God have been through. The things that they've seen, particularly the crossing of the Red Sea, but but also all that they have seen in Egypt. And this is a summary that will help them lead them into what is to come for them. So from this section, there's much that we can draw out and really chew on and dwell on. But I want us to settle into a particular attribute of God that is central here to this text. We'll get to that attribute in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about what it is that we've actually read here, just a brief overview of the text. What we see here is a congregational hymn. You might have noticed in verse 1, it's a song that not only Moses is singing, but all the people are joining him in singing. This is actually the first song that we hear recorded in the scripture. It's also one of the last songs that we hear recorded in the scripture as the saints in heaven in the book of Revelation chapter 15 are singing before the throne of the Lamb because he has conquered the beast. They are singing again this song. This song is not given a title, at least not within the text, but it's been referred to by a few names. Uh, the, The Hebrew name for it is the Shirat Hayam, which I just like the sound of that, which means the song of the sea specifically referencing what had happened uh, with Pharaoh and his chariots in the Red Sea. It's also called the Song of Moses. And even though Moses is not mentioned not even once within the text, we assume that he seems to be the author of this song. It's also sometimes referred to by its opening line. I will sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. I know that's a mouthful as a title, but that seems to be at the end when Miriam is picking it up and they're going through dancing that they're singing through this entire thing and it's just referred to by its opening line. We don't know how this song was sung exactly. You know, there's not a little 
well, I don't know all the technicalities about me. There's no staff, there's no sharps and flats, there's no tune listed in here. Uh, but we do know that Moses' sister Miriam helped to lead in this song, and she did so with tambourines and dancing. How do you like that for a congregational hymn? Uh, I know that this style, uh, with tam- this approach to singing with tambourines and dancing, uh, is, is, we know that it's not uncommon in the scripture. You know, when the, when the Lord brings them to water in the wilderness, when they're parched, uh, the people's response is to sing. Uh, when, when Deborah and Barak conquer the Canaanites, their response in the book of Judges is to sing. And then after David fights with Goliath and the Philistines, the women come out with tambourines and dancing and everybody sings. And, when, and during David's reign, when the Ark of the Covenant's been gone for quite some time and it finally is brought back into Jerusalem, they, they bust out all the tambourines and lyres and cymbals even, and they sing, and David strips off his royal robes so he can free up to dance. And I know that for some, that's probably not your style. Probably for most Presbyterians, the idea of tambourines and dancing is not our style. You know, any percussion in some ways just makes maybe some of us uncomfortable. And it's, of course, fine to have preference on these things to like certain songs more or less. That's very natural. It's very normal for all of us. But at the same time, we cannot allow our personal preferences to be turned into absolutes. We know that churches split over people nitpicking over what's good or appropriate music for worship. And the irony is that the people who split over those things don't even see how petty and selfish and sinful that attitude is to think that their music is superior, that their music is the only acceptable way. What a shame to think that. These songs, this song is sung to God, not to you, not to me, to God. These songs are worship to God, not to us. They're thanks to God, not to us. They're songs about what God has done, not what we have done. So God does not ask whether we approve of the music or not. Our singing is for his glory. And he is gracious and kind enough to lift us up into that, to allow us to share in the praise of him, however that looks. We don't want to miss that gift by quibbling over style, whether we like it or not. Now, that said, that's just a side note here. This particular song to God, this song that we've just sung, or that we've just read, I suppose, here in Exodus, is a is an anthem, a victory anthem, really. It's a celebration song. It reminds me in some ways, was it last year? I think so, that uh, the St. Louis Blues, the hockey team, uh, won the Stanley Cup. And, and everywhere you went, you heard, you remember hearing the song Gloria? 
It was like the team's like, song whenever they won. It's like, especially in St. Louis, wherever you went, on the radio, people were piping out of their cars, driving it down the street. This was this big uh, victory anthem everywhere. We won, is what that song is saying to the people. It's similar here, although, of course, the occasion of Exodus is a little different than a sporting event. The stakes are a little bit higher here. There's literally life and death on the line. So it's not quite the same as celebrating a hockey win, although for some it might feel very close. The content of this particular victory song might make some people feel uneasy if we look at some of the words of it. It might seem as if we are celebrating the death, destruction even, of human beings in Pharaoh and his armies. It might seem even that we're glad, somehow eerily happy, that they're thrown into the depths of the Red Sea to drown. You know, aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Is it even okay to sing of them this way? If you have those questions, these are good and honest questions to ask. I don't want to oversimplify or downplay them. I think it's also helpful to remember that we don't want to oversimplify Jesus either and make him too one-dimensional. So it was Jesus who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus also said, beware of the ravenous wolves and every fruitless tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus said both of those things, by the way, all in the same sermon. So these are all true things that we have to hold together, and it does take a bit of wisdom to sift through what this might look like. This song here in Exodus is not, it is not a celebration of death. It is not a showy, you know, or pompous, chest-puffing brag about who killed who. That's not what this is. The scripture says that the Lord takes no pleasure, no pleasure in the death of the wicked, so neither do we, at least neither should we. This is not a celebration of death. This song is a celebration of justice and the means that God used to bring that about. You can hear it if you hear the whole uh, song together, but especially if we read in verse 9, the enemy said, so Pharaoh and his crew, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill, I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them, but you, Lord, blew with your wind. Sometimes, if there is a dangerous lion who refuses to be tamed. Sometimes the right way to deal with that is to put the lion down. And that's what was done here. So it is right to to sing about how the mouths of the lions have been stopped. 
the works of the Lord in Exodus, not just at the Red Sea, but all of the 10 plagues, the 10 judgments, all of it is part of his righteous justice. And so it is praiseworthy, worth singing about. Now, having said that, this song is not only or even mainly, I think, about God's justice. There are many things going on here of which justice is just one of them. There is something else, I think, that seems central to this song as a theme. And we want to understand this particular thing about the Lord. I said we'd get to a particular attribute of God in a moment. This is what we'll be talking about in the rest of the time. You ready for it? This is our one focus, that God is matchless. God is matchless. If we look at the design or the structure of the song, which is something that nerdy people like me do, but if we look at the design of it, roughly the first half of the song is about past events for Israel things that they have experienced throughout their time in Egypt, how the oppressors of Egypt were consumed in the sea and how the Lord triumphed gloriously over them, their past events. And then roughly the second half is about these future events, how the surrounding nations will tremble as Israel comes because the Lord is leading his people to dwell in his holy abode and how the Lord will reign with them forever and ever. And then linking these past and future events, there are a few verses in the middle. And it's there that we hear these words in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? It's as if Moses and all the people are now, as they sing this, saying, all that we've been through has taught us this. Who is like the Lord? And they're not asking to be answered. This is a rhetorical question, of course, where the answer is assumed. There is no one like God. He is matchless. Now, having said that, so we'll focus the rest of the time on what it means that God is matchless. An important observation that needs to be made about this is the song does not sing, what is the Lord like? It says, who is like the Lord? It does not say, what is the Lord like, with the assumption of like, we don't really know what the Lord is like. You know, sometimes we hear people say, you know, God is God. And so because he's God, he's, he's so high above us that he's just mysterious. And so we can't really know what God is like. And that might sound spiritual, but it's only partly true at best. Of course, it's true that God is God and that God is high above us. We call that that he's transcendent. 
It's also true that in some ways, of course, many ways, God is mysterious, he's beyond our knowledge, but it's also true that there's lots, lots that we can and do know about our God because he shows us, because he tells us, because he displays his wonders. If we really knew nothing about God, if he was really just only a mystery and all we would have is just our best guesses and nobody really knows better than anyone else, it would be meaningless to sing to him. I mean, can you imagine a song singing to a God we don't know? I'll sing to the Lord, whoever he is, for he has triumphed gloriously, probably. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea, although it could have also just been an accidental wind. The Lord is my strength and my song, I think. But he might also just be a cosmic force who doesn't really care about us. This is the best as I can tell. No, no one would say these things quite in those words. But some people think that way. That we can't really know God, it's just a guess. And so then it's no wonder that for many people, even for some Christians, they feel like their worship to God is empty. We cannot sing praise to a God that we don't know. How can we praise him if we don't know what he's like? Thankfully, he tells us what he's like. The Lord reveals himself to us. Generally, and then specifically to his people, we've seen much of what the Lord is like in these past months as we've read through his works in the book of Exodus. We see the Lord all through the pages of his word. We see his attributes. We see his actions. We see his attitudes, the things he loves and hates. The Lord even gives us various metaphors about himself to compare uh, things to. He's called a rock and a fortress. He's called a shepherd. He's called a potter. He's called both a lion and a lamb. So we don't sing, what is the Lord like? We know who it is that we're singing to. We also know that there is no one else like him. Who is like the Lord? Now, for the rest of our time, what exactly, how exactly is he unlike anyone else? How is the Lord different here? In many ways, the Lord is different in kind. He is of a different kind. So who is like the Lord in that sense? By which I mean, he is unlike anyone else. So for example, the Lord our God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons. There is no one or nothing else in the universe like that. He is of a different kind in that sense, so he is without compare and matchless. Also, Jesus is of a different kind in a sense that he has two full natures within himself. He is fully God and fully man, human and divine, all in one. He's also sinless. The new Adam, the scripture calls him, which makes him uniquely able to save us as the sacrifice in our place. Jesus, in a sense, is of a different kind 
God is also the only uncreated one. Everything else, everyone else has been created, but not God. And in this sense, we, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's armies, even all the angels and demons, even Satan himself, we all have more in common with dust than we do with God. He is matchless because he's of a different kind. We see his matchlessness sung in this song, however, in a different way. Here we see that he is of a different degree. So we sing of his matchlessness in majesty, in holiness, in glory, and in might, that he's just superior in those things. Others have some measure of majesty, but he has more. That's why he's the king of kings. There are many kings, but he's the supreme. He's the Lord of lords. He's the God of gods. In other words, he is so much bigger and greater that it doesn't even compare. So have you ever seen... Usain Bolt, run. You know who I'm talking about? It's been a little while, the Olympics, but the, the Jamaican uh, sprinter who's just super tall and, and holds a whole bunch of world records. Uh, if you've ever seen him run, especially in the Olympics, the Olympics is the gathering of the fastest runners on the planet. The planet. And in the race with Usain Bolt, the race isn't even close. I mean, if you watch some of the videos of him, the space between Usain Bolt and the second place runner behind him, there's such a gap that he has time to turn back and look at them in the middle of the race, just this short little race. He is of such a different degree that he is matchless. That's what they're saying when they ask who is like the Lord. That there is such a gap between him and whoever might be behind him that you can't even compare in majesty, holiness, and all these things. It's true of all that the Lord is. He is his, his justice is unmatched. His mercy is unmatched. His wisdom is unmatched. He has peace that passes understanding. He has love that passes knowledge. All this is so far beyond us that we can't quite wrap our minds around it. There's one way that this hits home, especially for me. When we put our girls to bed, at the end of the day, we have our you know, regular routines, the teeth brushing, of course, read the story, and all the such things that go with that. And we often say, Daddy loves you, kiss. Mommy loves you, kiss. And Jesus loves you more than both of us put together. Jesus loves you more than mommy and daddy put together. That the love of Jesus, like, he just, Usain bolts us in love. 
His love is to such a different degree that it's matchless. So we could take whatever height of love that we might know in this world, take whatever highest point of love we might experience, then multiply that love times, ooh, infinity, because our God is infinite, and there's his love. That, that is unimaginable to me, especially knowing how much I dearly love my children. It doesn't even seem possible that it could be bigger than that. And yet it's true that the love of God for my own children is so far beyond my love for them. We don't need to understand his matchlessness. But we do need to trust it. And if we embrace the matchlessness of God, it becomes our strength and our hope. The prophet Isaiah words it this way. In Isaiah chapter 40, I'll pick up in verse 25, the Lord says this, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my rights disregarded by my God? Haven't you known? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding's unsearchable, and he gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Mm. We need this. The matchlessness of God matters very much for us. Because even though we are not facing the ten plagues and the Red Sea and all the drama that comes around that, there is no shortage in our own circumstances of unprecedented events, of matchless situations, at least in some ways. This virus has brought massive issues across the world. There's unprecedented job loss, business closures, concerns about government reach. You know, and some say with this upcoming presidential election, the stakes have never been higher and that the country's more divided than it's ever been. We hear about wildfires and glacial melts that are unprecedented and, and our technology our technology alone is more powerful and influential than it has ever been in human history. 
It matters that a Christian tries, at least by God's grace, to lean into these things, to try to address them, but it's easy as we lean in to become overwhelmed, at least for me. Because if we look at even just one of these big things, it's easy to feel that outmatched sense. It's just too much. So it's good for us, even necessary for us, that we let the matchlessness of our God flow over us and overwhelm us so that we'll trust that there is no one, no one like him. It's not even close. Would you pray with me? Oh. Lord, with, we join with people throughout the ages now in saying, who is like you, O Lord, among even the gods? You are outmatching of everyone in every way. Help us to believe this, to find our rest, our comfort, our strength here to live as faithful people, and may our weaknesses highlight your strength. We trust you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.